Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Breakpoint Podcast, continuing our ongoing series, um, the beginner series. I don't know what we've called this. Just called it the beginner series. Like, yeah, it kind of started with this idea I had of, you know, we have a lot of people who are listening to the podcast that aren't necessarily as in the weeds as Marcus, myself, and uh, the LIU tennis teams. <laughs> and, um, you know, so we wanted to do something to kind of explain the history of tennis background of it. I also think this is going to be a really useful series for anyone who could potentially start watching tennis with the advent of the Netflix series that's going to be coming out next year. Um I think that's going to be a really positive thing for the game. So hopefully we'll get some new fans, which will be great. So this episode of the beginner series is going to be covering the grand slams. So we've spoken about this on the podcast quite often. These are the centerpieces of the tennis season. They're going to be the centerpiece of that upcoming Netflix series that I just mentioned, sort of covering the four biggest tournaments in tennis, which are collectively known as the grand slams. So, With that, we're also going to be discussing the court surfaces, which is another aspect of tennis that's pretty cool is that, you know, we play on these different surfaces that are pretty distinct in nature. Um, That's become blurred over, you know, present time. But in the past, it was very distinct. Um, So let's kick it off with the first major of the year that just ended, which is the Australian Open, which is probably the most unique of the four. I think so at least. Um, it's the newest of the four. It's probably the most like modern hip fun in a way of the four. Um, and it's also like beyond being new in the sense of like, uh, it is the youngest of the four. It's also new in the sense of the Australian open wasn't really like played by every major player until, call it the late 1980s early 1990s 1988 to be exact yeah yeah, that's that's roughly the time that it actually starts to become like a real thing but uh yeah that's that's the australian open takes place in melbourne always in january um it's a great you know really fun tournament the facilities are effectively brand new really well um upkept uh, the the crowd's great. It honestly just looks like a great time. It's very consistently rated by the players as their favorite tournament, most like best well run, like the whole thing. So yeah, Marcus will kind of elaborate a little bit more on Australia. Yeah. So from working at the US Open and speaking with these players and also just kind of hearing their feedback, every single one of them has, you know, said the Australian Open is the best Grand Slam player wise as far as their player services and kind of just uniqueness. And it's been voted that way for quite a few years. And that's something that the U.S. Open actually tries to compete with and strives to be the most uh, player-friendly Grand Slam. However, Australia somehow tends to take the cake every year. I don't know how they're going to fare after this year. No comment. Novak Djokovic. Um, but <laughs> yeah, otherwise, Australia is really a, a really... A, a great grand slam it's also a really fun grand slam to watch because it's kind of you know it's beginning of the year it's exciting we get to see all the new players coming out who are kind of coming out swinging everybody's returned from off-season training we want to see if they've added anything to their game players are using new rackets they got new sponsorships it's all kind of new and exciting and it's really a great way to you know kick off the tennis year and i think that it's a shame that it wasn't valued as 
it should have been uh, before 1988, really. That's kind of when it became popular. Before then, it was still existed, actually. You could technically be a Grand Slam winner, but you would get some really random names that would not, you know, you wouldn't really know. Guys like Yvonne Lendl, Boris Becker, the, you know, these really good guys in the early 80s, you know, they really wouldn't, they just wouldn't go. The late 80s, has started to become more popular. They really pumped a lot of money into it. And since then, it's become a mandatory part of basically everybody's schedule. So um, shout out to Australia for making a big push there. Well, I think they also made it more of like a a workable event in the sense of you didn't go to Australia just to play the Australian Open and then you're done and you're leaving. They've made it a swing, right? They have the ATP Cup that takes place before. They have, uh, you know, the Brisbane and Sydney tournaments that go on. There's a lot that goes on in the month prior now that it's like, oh, like I can fly to Australia and stay there for a month. And now this doesn't feel like I'm going to go to Australia for five days, potentially, and, you know, back off to Europe afterwards, you know? Yeah, and international travel and these, you know, these things have gotten a lot better and more comfortable. So players are actually comfortable going to Australia instead of sitting in an airplane and reading a book for 17 hours. They can watch films and stuff, you know, it just everything's kind of become more modernized and that's allowed... Uh, really everything in the world to become more globalized and including the sport of tennis, which is why we're able to go down to Australia and really have a huge presence of tennis. And uh, it, the, another reason why the Australian Open is unique, Frank, is that sometimes it gets incredibly hot, like to the point where players' shoes are melting because it is so hot there. And then it is, it's a it real... is the hottest of the four majors, I would say. U.S. Open's probably second. Um, Australia is definitely consistently the yeah. hottest, muggiest. The muggiest. And occasionally cook. you'll get those days where it's 104 degrees out and they still sometimes, I think they've started to put some caps on it, but there are some back in the day, if you watch early 2000s, they would be playing and it'd be 100 degrees out and you'd see these guys literally dying. But it was kind of unique I mean, as a spectator because you'd be like, okay, who's more fit? Who can handle this better? And that's not something that you really see at a Roland Garros or a, a Wimbledon. So that was something that's unique. So big fan of Australian Open. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't we talk about the surface with Australia? So ah, the yes. surface Australian Open is played on hard court. Um, specifically, it's played on a more heavily sanded hard court. So the level of sand that is in a hard court will determine its speed. The more sand, the slower it is. Uh, and I'll let Marcus sort of dive into a little bit of like the specifics of the brands and the type because he, he's got a little bit more insight on that. So just to go over based the, the tradition of the Australian Open way back in the day was on grass, right? So it used to be on a grass court. Then they switched it over. They played on a, another Australia always has unique surfaces. So they played on something called rebound ace, which was a very rubbery, high bouncing surface that suited guys like Andre Agassi extremely well because it was a little bit slower. It made the court super hot and he loved the heat. He was from Vegas. He just was just he loved heat. He needed heat to play. And that really suited his game style. But then they realized that the rebound days was kind of taking a toll on the players a little bit and they needed to switch it up. So now what they came up with is this plexi cushion, which is what they've been using since 2008. Uh, the court is colored completely blue. I've played on plexi cushion before, actually. It's really nice. It's nice and soft. Uh, and depending, like Frank said, how much sand they're going to put in it, it's slower or faster. Now, I remember some years where the players were saying it's playing extremely quick this year. I remember a couple of years back, Darren Cahill, all those uh, ESPN commentators saying it's playing extremely quick. And then sometimes they'll add some extra sand in the court every year to make it a little bit slower and more playable because it is hot down there. So the hotter it is, the faster the ball travels. 
and that sometimes makes a difference big time so that's why it goes into the factor of what they're going to do with the court yeah um i always think of the australian open as like the more sanded um slowed down hard court in comparison to the u.s open which we'll get into a little bit later but yeah it's a it's a great event there's nothing but positive things i think to say about uh the australian open it's 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 probably the the major that we want to see more than than that we want to go visit more more than any of the others on here marcus and i have always like sort of uh, spoken about that so uh, up next is Roland Garros, uh, also known as the French Open. That is played on a red clay court. Um, it is, yeah, it's it's the clay court slam. So there's the clay court swing that sort of leads up to Roland Garros, which start like Roland Garros usually takes place like late May. To Frank, early I think June. we should explain to our listeners what a clay court is, and I think I'll do a decent job of this because i've played on both because there is a difference in america if you've ever seen a clay court it is green they has a company called hard true that makes it and they make it some out of some sort of i'm not sure what exactly actually exactly what the materials are for hard true it's more synthetic i believe so it's it more is synthetic. synthetic it's not it's not crushed red brick it's yeah. it's something there's some sort of additive that makes it that greenish color um, it's like the same thing as like the blue clay, right? When they had that in Madrid, there was an iron oxide oxide that was added to it that made it uh, much more similar to a hard court um, in terms of like speed and bounce than a normal clay court, than a normal like crushed red brick. Right. You know, leave it as is. So yeah, that there's it's some sort of synthetic additive. Right. So those are the clay courts that you'll see in America, those red ones. And when you watch TV and you see something that's red, that's red clay, which Frank just alluded to, is a uh, it's essentially crushed bricked, mixed with some other minerals. It plays very slow. It's like playing literally on sand in Germany. They actually call it Zand, which means sand. And I think, in it, do they call it clay? It's sand in Italy too. Yeah. So basically, you can slide around on it. You can you know, run. It's very difficult to get footing. You have to actually have some special shoes on it. It plays extremely slow, very high bouncing because of the nature of it. And the weather affects the playability even more so than the other courts. If it's really hot and dry, a clay court can play extremely fast, can play even faster than a hard court and super high bouncing. I remember matches, Frank, where I've played, I didn't even need to bend my knees. And if it's really wet outside, you can. another great thing about clay is it absorbs so much water and this material that you can play while it's raining essentially and that makes it extremely slow very low bouncing very grindy you're going to have a lot of long points drop shots are super effective on clay because it essentially kind of digs into the clay and dives so clay is very rewarding for players who are it's the most physically demanding surface by far and this is why Roland Garros is considered the toughest grand slam to win because of the physically most demanding it creates for some very unique play styles it really uses the whole court lots of angles being used because now that you're able to slide and run around the court you're able to get to places that you never thought you would and it really it, it can it can really you know produce some extremely high level tennis that you just don't see in other services yeah i think marcus and i are kind of in agreement clay is our favorite surface um clay is my favorite surface yeah clay is my favorite surface to play on always has been marcus same thing i think that because even though it was a hard true that you know i grew up playing in new york on which i feel very fortunate that that was what i learned to play tennis on we are extremely lucky that we have that it has paid 
multiple dividends in terms of like my tennis movement and anticipation because I learned how to do it on a clay court. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's just my opinion. I, th- I think clay is, you know, there's nothing better than it. I wish it was more common in this country. Um, and it doesn't make sense to me why it's not because you can play in it and like, it's so easy to upkeep. Like you just leave it on in the rain. It doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to worry about cracking or any of this nonsense. Like, you know, it just absorbs moisture. You play and that's it. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully it becomes more of a a bigger thing. But, uh, the other thing that I would say about Roland Garros is, uh, well, there's two things I would say. One, Marcus sort of spoke about in terms of when you watch Roland Garros, you'll see much more of a use horizontally than at any other major, right? Because the, the, it's a lot more, sl- it's a lot slower and, and everything like that. Court Philippe, Philippe Chatrier, which is the main court on Roland Garros, is also one of the largest stadiums, uh, largest tennis courts in the world. And by largest, I don't mean like the capacity. I'm talking about the physical like dimensions of the court. It's one of the biggest. And the reason for that is because of clay. Right. It's because Rafael Nadal, for example, can like literally hit the ball like all the way to the side sometimes like ridiculously. And part of the reason why Nadal is so successful at specifically Philippe Chatrier over any other court in the world is because of the dimensions. He has more room to slide around, get the ball. And like there are angles that he can play at Philippe Chatrier that he does not have at, uh, you know, even like, you know, Monte Carlo, for example, whatever. So that's that's uh, that's one part of it. The other part that I would say about Roland Garros is, you know, Mark's kind of alluded to it earlier again, but uh, we've seen a lot of like one slam wonders come out of Roland Garros, I think, more than any other of the majors, in my opinion. Wimbledon maybe is second, but we've seen like a Gaston Gaudio come out of like Roland Garros. Like we've seen a bunch of like really random South American players specifically come out, win Roland Garros and then like completely fall off the face of the planet. Excuse me. Gaston Gaudio is the goat. Okay. The G O A T goat. Shout out to Coria. (laughs) Um, Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. That's tough for Coria. All right, so we'll we'll move on to uh, the other European Slam. Oh, um, one more thing about Roland Garros before we move on. It was the only. It is so uh, as of last year or last year they finally put lights on there. It was the only Grand Slam actually outside of Wimbledon. I guess it also didn't have uh, lights that you could play at night. So Roland Garros was always one of those annoying slams where a match would be really good going late into the evening and they'd have to stop because it gets too dark don't it it's a it's so archaic it's, it's like it's like it's like we're living in like the 1880s it's so stupid it's like, it's, yeah it's like wimbledon whatever. which we're actually you know what great segue into wimbledon yeah great segue we're, into wimbledon wimbledon at least fixed it now whatever i'm, I'm do not they still have down. the 11 p.m deadline at wimbledon do they still have the what deadline the 11, the, they got to stop playing by 11 p.m because the neighborhood rules no i don't think so i, I think, think they still have no that, i think no? on main on main court you can i think on the outside courts yes yeah but they don't even have lights do they I think they do now. They do now. I think oh, so. God. Yeah, Wimbledon's one. Of, Wimbledon's the most. We're going to get into it. Wimbledon is the most traditional slam. It is actually one of the. I think it is the oldest tennis tournament in the world ever. The players are still forced to wear all white. There, you can't have. Uh, there's no logos or sponsors in the back of the main courts like at other Grand Slams. The only one that is there is Rolex. They are still the only exclusive sponsor. It's totally old school. You see the queen sitting in the box with a hand. Well, they have a royal box, yes. Royal but, box. But, but but listen. Yeah. 
Wimbledon, Wimbledon, we joke about it, but like Wimbledon is the most important tournament in all of tennis. It is the equivalent of like the Monaco Grand Prix in Formula One. No, no doubt. There is this Wimbledon, quite honestly, not even speaking from like a tennis fan's perspective, might be the most important and prestigious tournament, sports tournament of of anything. Right. I mean, there, there, there's there's nothing that really compares to it in terms of the spectacle, the prestige, um, you know, everything that goes into it, you know, like the freaking strawberries and cream, like all these like stupid things. Getting tickets to it is effectively impossible uh, unless you want to wait on a like will call line for like six hours plus. Yeah. Like, and if not overnight. This is why the Australian Open and the U.S. Open are most fan favorite because they have the most courts and the most space and grounds. French Open Roland Garros is the smallest venue out of all of them, and Wimbledon is quite small as well. This is why it's extremely difficult to get tickets there. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been to Roland Garros, like not when the tournament was going on, but I've been to the facility in in Paris. It's really tiny, so that that makes complete sense. Um, you know, the other thing that I'll say about Wimbledon in comparison to the other tournaments that we just said is Wimbledon is a private club, right? Roland Garros, U.S. Open and the Australian Open, those are not necessarily private clubs. They're run by the Tennis Australia, USTA, um, French Tennis Federation. Like they run those sites and like they'll have their headquarters there or something along those lines there. Like the LTA does not have like their headquarters in Wimbledon. Wimbledon is run by the All England Lawn and tennis club like whatever it that, is that's how old it is we yeah call, we still it's call like it literally when you think tennis of tennis yeah. as like this gatekeeping like you know elitist country club sport like wimbledon is the pinnacle of it and wimbledon is the last remnant of that like all of the majors all of the tournaments that we're talking about they are all based on wimbledon wimbledon is the start um, you know, it's the alpha and the omega, if you will, what, whatever you'd like to refer to. All of these players dream of winning Wimbledon. Wimbledon is is the one that they want more than any. And it's the most unique because they play it on grass, which is a which back in the day, as we you know, everything used to be called lawn tennis clubs, including in America. And then they realized that that's way too much maintenance to play tennis. So that's why they created hard courts. But lawn tennis, grass tennis is extremely rare. And this is the only Grand Slam to be held on grass. It's extremely thinly cut grass. It used to be a lot faster. They added in some sort of other soil into it or they cut the grass differently. I forgot what they did. The grass is a lot slower now, so now the ball actually bounces pretty high. If you want to play on a traditional grass court, you'd go to Forest Hills here in Queens, New York. They have very traditional grass courts where it bounces super low. Yep, Newport, Rhode Island, where the Tennis Hall of Fame is. Um, But yeah, Wimbledon is very unique in that sense that it's still played on grass. Yeah, um... Grass, grass typically favors, you know, serve and volley style players. So the more uh, traditional play style of tennis, ball is not going to bounce super high. It's pretty slick. Uh, it's really, really fast. You can't do like those hard, like horizontal pivots that you can do on a clay court or anything like that. So you, you just, you used to not really be able to play a baseline style on a grass court. Obviously that has changed and now you kind of can. Um, the other thing that Marcus kind of alluded to, yes, the soil has changed. They've also let the grass length, um, go a little bit longer, which is part of the reason why the ball is slower. Um, if the grass length is higher, there's more there's more for the ball to dig into, um, and therefore it slows the ball down. Um, so that's the other thing that's happened with Wimbledon. Um, 
the the double of Roland Garros into Wimbledon, like winning those two tournaments back to back, used to be considered one of the most prestigious and incredible feats that an athlete could do in all of sport, not only tennis, but in all of sport. It was something that Bjorn Borg did like, I think, four times in a row. He did it five times in a row. Um, and that was like, whoa, uh, because they are so dramatically polar opposites in their play style. And I, I really do think that like that, when you look back on it now, like when you look back on how different those surfaces were in the 1970s, that is a, a, a mind boggling feat that he was able to win Wimbledon and the French Open back to back all those years. Absolutely. And it still is. And just for context for our listeners, when the French Open ends, the players have about three weeks. I think they get a week off and then there's like one or two tournaments right before Wimbledon. And then they're right into Wimbledon. So not only are you playing another Grand Slam, which is three out of five sets for the men, two out of three sets for the women, and you got to play seven matches to win, which is for both men and women is a huge feat. Now you have to go out and you also have to completely adjust your game and completely adjust your footing and everything, even your muscles. Think about the different... Have you ever played on a grass court, Frank? I mean... One time, I've played on it once or twice. Man, my legs were so sore the next day because I was using muscle that I had never used before. It's incredible. Um, so yeah, that's one of the toughest feats, as French, as Frank mentioned, uh, in tennis. And that leaves us with our last Grand Slam, Frank and I's favorite Grand Slam. Uh, we do have a bit of bias because we live literally ten minutes from this Grand Slam, and it's uh, we're honestly honored that we could participate in this Grand Slam, uh, working there for many years. Uh, the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open is the final Grand Slam of the year. It is uh, held at the end of August. It is also an extremely difficult tournament to win because now you've just played two Grand Slams in the summer, in June and July, and now you're going in for your third one at the end of the summer where it gets really hot in New York. Temperatures are easily above 80 every single day, um, and it is not necessarily the most famous or the most prestigious, but it is definitely the most glamorous because it's New York City. It's under the lights. We have one of the most electric night sessions in the world for any sport. If you happen to have a chance to go to the U.S. Open, I highly recommend it. Even if you're not a tennis person, just go for a night session. You will have a blast, especially beginning rounds outside courts if you get a really cool match that goes late into the night under the lights. It's, there's just nothing like it. I can't describe it. Yeah, I mean, listen, New York... It- there's a, there's a few reasons, right? Like A, it's the night session. B, it's the United States, right? And C, it's New York. So, I mean, there's just, there's nothing that compares to the, the U.S. Open. Like if you're going to pick any of all of the things at these, these majors that we've spoken about, the best, for me, the best like thing, right, is singularly the U.S. Open night session. There's just nothing that compares to it. Um, uh, again, probably biased because I am quite literally from Flushing, Queens. But <laughs> but for me, you know, it, it, it's so cool that, you know, if Marcus and I want to play one day, it's just like, oh, yeah, let's go hit it like one of the four grand slams in the world. Like we can like I, I'm going to go play there on Tuesday for as a matter of fact. So like it's just so cool that I can do that. But um, but yeah, I mean, listen, the U.S. Open is the most glamorous. I would say it's also becoming uh, Wimbledon is yes maybe the most prestigious and traditional and blah 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 but I would say the most like like luxurious now is becoming the U.S. Open I think there's been a real push over the past few years I don't know if Marcus will agree or disagree to make 
the U.S. Open fit like much more with that like luxury segment, like premium, like sort of. Oh, to people. Americanize it. Yeah, to Americans. Right. Um, like I've noticed that like I I so for background I work on Wall Street and like. I noticed that like all of these banks will always offer to take me and like my other coworkers out to the U S open and they have like their own box. They have their own, you know, this and that and whatever. And at least I remember growing up, um, you know, like it was like relatively like a middle classish event. Like, yeah, you had some, like you obviously had your suits like at every New York, like that's every New York sports event always has the suits in the boxes. But like, you know, it was affordable for like, me and my dad or Marcus and his dad to like go for a day session or something to the U S open. It wasn't like crazy expensive. Whereas now I've seen it become much more expensive, um, and much more catering to that luxury segment. At least in my opinion, I've seen that change. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, whether it's we- the amenities that are there, the restaurants, stuff like that, it, it is, it, it's definitely changed. I'll it is wildly changed, um, over the past five years. Yeah, every single year, um, it, it's become that way. You know, Chase Bank Suite, this suite, that suite. You know, Grey Goose Vodka Stand, everything. This American I'm, Express Lounge. Yeah, lounge. Oh, if you have an Amex card, you can you know access like this fifteen feet of square footage that you know. Oh, that peasant over there can't. You know, it's it's silly. And and this is why Frank and I worked at the U.S. Open. Um, it was because not only well, we wanted to be part of it, right? We really wanted to be part of it, obviously. But it was also like, damn, this is going to get expensive. If we want to come here every single day and watch tennis so we were like all right let's work there frank and i worked as ball boys for two or three years together i ended up working player ops a little bit afterwards which is another great way to see the open um now we you know we're working class citizens you know so now we do pay to go but it's it's totally worth every single dollar i brought my girlfriend there for the first time and she really knows nothing about tennis and she had an absolute blast she actually begged me to go like another two or three days i said okay great I'm down. Um, this is just a, it's a fantastic sporting event. Highly recommend people going. It's the second to best behind the Australian Open as far as player friendliness, in my opinion, as well. Um, and yeah, so the U.S. Open, one of the best slams out there. And that is played on a hard court as well. The U.S. Open is traditionally a little bit faster uh, than the Australian Open. They do tend to leave a little less sand out, especially they just switched services two years ago. They went from Deco Turf to... It's something similar to plexi cushion or bounce. I forgot what it was, but they they made it. The players said that it was significantly quicker than it was prior, which has made for some interesting tennis. Uh, rewards kind of the faster playing guys like a Daniil Medvedev who hits the ball relatively flat, and Djokovic, but he's really good on any surface. So that is our Grand Slam uh, playing surface wrap up, folks. You can follow us, hit us up on Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast Seven. We are always available via email. If anybody actually wants to send us an email, breakpointpodcast7 at gmail.com or inbox is empty. Please send us one. And we're also via, available via Carrier Pigeon, 11361. Just tell the pigeon to drop it off somewhere in Bayside. We'll, it'll find our way. Yeah. Um, and also facts to Staples in, on Northern Boulevard. We'll, we'll take that too. Um, yeah, not, but not for much longer. That's probably going out of business. Yeah, so. it's definitely going out of business. That's fine. It'll become the crypto.com of Northern Boulevard, similar to the Staples Center. Yes, RIP. Good point, Frank. Um, we will have our crypto wallet posted so you can send us some ETH donations. Oh, Lord. That's um, not a joke. Okay. One last topic before we go um, that I wanted to do really quick rapid fire. Rank the four majors from best to worst, one through four. What, what, what do you mean best to worst? But your favorite to your least favorite, one through four. Go. U.S. Open, Wimbledon, French Open, Australian. 
wow, that's wildly hot take. Um, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, Australian Open, Roland Garros. No. Yeah. Um, I love the Australian Open. Uh, Wimbledon is number one for me. It's 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 just, I don't know. I have so many fond memories of watching Wimbledon as a kid. It just, I don't yeah. know. What about those fond memories of being at the U.S. Open? No. Come on, man. There's no way. There's no way. You're lying. No, absolutely lying. not. No, I'll never give that to the U.S. Open. Folks, um, we got to go because we got to watch a Super Bowl. Yeah, let's go Bengals. Joe Shiesty, here he comes. Let's go. See ya. Bye.